This program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a nonprofit with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Change menus, change lives. Learn more at chefscollaborative.org. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Good afternoon, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting from Roberta's on Heritage Radio Network. Today, we're going to be talking all about farmers and President Trump. As you may know, the rural community, including uh, much of the farming community, supported Trump in the 2016 election, which was arguably not in their best interest. We're going to dive into the issue of why this was the case and the expected repercussions of the Trump administration um, will have on this community. Joining us on the line to talk through these issues is Alicia Harvey and Brian Barth. Alicia is the Advocacy and Issues Director at FarmAid, founded by Willie Nelson, Neil Young, and John Mellencamp in 1985. FarmAid is a nonprofit organization that promotes a strong and resilient family farm system of agriculture. Also with us on the line is Brian Barth, a journalist focused on food, farming, and the environment, and a writer at large for the magazine Modern Farmer. Alicia and Brian, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Um, okay, so before we dig into the most obvious question of this conversation, I want to start by kind of providing some context to the community we're going to be talking about. So in thinking about your work, how do you define rural communities and what are the different sort of categories of agriculture producers in the states today? Alicia, do you want to take that one? Yeah, sure. Um you know, I think we work with, um, because we're always pulling from the U.S. Department of Agriculture's data, we generally run with their definitions about rural America. So that usually includes areas that are non-metro, um, that include open countryside, um, that have rural towns with often fewer than 2,500 people. Um, and that might include urban areas, but with populations that are usually under 50,000 um, and aren't connected to a labor market like, you know, a major city. Um, and there's about 46 million Americans who fit into that, about 2 million of which are farmers. And then what are the kind of different categories of farmers, broadly speaking, when we, when we talk about this issue? I mean, you know, Farming is an incredibly diverse uh, uh, field, to be honest. Um, you know, I think a lot of people think of sort of large commodity farms when they think of agriculture, um, which is certainly a hugely important part of um, American agriculture production, and it, it produces quite a large share of the total food production from the U.S., but there are many mid-sized and small farmers. There are an array of 
um, crops and animals that they grow. Mm-hmm. And they also represent a whole range of, of uh, races and, and also, you know, women and men farm, male farmers. So um, at Farm Aid, we deal with really the full range of farmers out there. Now I want to start with the explanation of why uh, the rural and farming communities overwhelmingly supported his candidacy. So, Alicia, can you just kind of kick us off uh, with a few of the um, you know, reasons that you believe this was the case, uh, maybe starting with sort of the history of how we kind of got to this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's, you know, starting with the history is good because the reality is that neither campaign actually spoke effectively about farm policy, nor has really any presidential campaign done that. And that's something we hope changes very much moving forward because every American has a stake in what happens on our farms. But, you know, I think it's important to to dig deep when we think about why did this election turn out the way it did. Um, You know, putting aside the fact that there are a diversity of farmers out there who have many different political ideologies, you know, much of rural America struggled to recover from the 2008 recession. And I think you could make the argument that it never really recovered from the 80s farm crisis. That's certainly when farm aid came into existence. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the common thread is really this progression of pro-corporate policies that really date back to the 1970s um, that were designed to move farmers off the land in the name of efficiency, economic efficiency. And so there's really been a dramatic, I mean, to the tune of maybe 2 million farmers or more that we lost by 1990. Um, and that had a dramatic effect on the fabric of rural communities and the status of rural economies. And I think there's kind of a brewing anger out there in rural America. And, you know, partially, if not heavily, explains why so many gravitated toward Trump, particularly when the farm economy is in a really tough place right now. So they thought that Trump kind of similarly how he spoke to those in the Rust Belt, they thought this particular community thought that Trump and his policies could affect change in terms of their um, economic well-being? Well, I think it appears that the Trump campaign was more effective at speaking, you know, understanding kind of lightning rod issues that farmers would care about and speaking to it. You know, again, would reiterate that Neither did that as successfully as some candidates of the past did, but when it feels like no one's listening to you, mm-hmm. you know, I could see, and I think many are starting to understand why the sense of someone who's going to buck the system when the system has been so atrocious for your concerns is, you know, there is an appeal there. What about, um, Brian, can you um, start us on the conversation about TPP? Because this was kind of a hot button issue in the campaign. And and we know that Trump and actually Bernie Sanders, for that matter, were very much against this this policy. Can you tell us a little bit about, um, you know, what it entails? Well, without going into great detail, the the TPP was... um, you know, a, a NAFTA-like policy, essentially, for the uh, Pacific Rim countries. And the, as far as agriculture is concerned, it, it, of course, applied to a broad array of industries far beyond agriculture. But, um, you know, the idea was to reduce trade barriers to American products. And there, the United States produces 
far more of certain uh, agricultural products than it consumes, especially in the commodities area of grains and soybeans and, and nuts and things like that, and, and dairy and meat. Um, so that export market is very important to a lot of farmers um, and, you know, had uh, a lot of agribusiness uh, lobbyists behind it. Um, and so those folks, you know, even though they may have voted for Trump because they tend to be a uh, Republican-leaning bunch, uh, that's an area where they did not see eye to eye. How does that explain why they did uh, vote for, you know, pulling out of TPP? Because it seems like that would be have a negative effect on most farmers in this country. Well, exactly. That's what I'm saying. It, it is a contradiction. It's, it's an area that... Uh, Perhaps if you're, a, you know, a, a beef farmer uh, and you rely somewhat on exports to Asian markets, mm-hmm. um, I know Japan was a big one uh, that the TPP was, you know, going to help a lot more American beef move to Japan. And um, if you voted for Trump, then you were overlooking that difference. Um, Alicia, yeah. Oh, I was going to offer um, that. I think there uh, was a, a real differential between how major agribusiness interests, um, the major trade organizations, spoke about the TPP, and they were vastly pro-TPP, mm-hmm. but that was actually starkly different than how a lot of farmers felt about the deal. Um, so, you know, TPP was written by and for corporations, and, you know, farmers sense of their trade advantage has really changed over the last several decades. Um, and I think farmers were starting to feel that. Um, how, has you know, it, how has it changed? Well, I would, you know, in the 1970s, let's say, farmers, American farmers had probably a 65% share of the global grain trade, and that has plummeted to 30% huh. over the last decade. Um the U.S. trade deficit for fruits and vegetables, um, let's see, in 2015, it was $11.4 billion. So we were vastly importing more than we were exporting for fruits and vegetables. The Korea Free Trade Agreement actually hit um, American beef producers very hard. And so there was this growing shift that someone's benefiting, but most likely it's major agribusinesses, and they were trying to speak on behalf of farmers, but a lot of farmers took great issue with it. Um, and I think particularly when they saw the death of the um, country of origin labeling, cool, mm-hmm. um, which was, you know, for major meat products and vastly supported by farmers and consumers. Um, and sort of the pro-agribusiness lobby was able to kick it to the curb under international trade regime rules. And so there was this growing sense that um, TPP, you know, there was a farm voice speaking against it in collaboration with labor and environmental and a lot of other interests. Um, and Cool required, Cool waived the, the requirement to label uh, meat in terms of its country of origin. Is that right? Yeah, so it, it labeled it would have labeled major meat products um, so that you can know where that that meat comes from. And American farmers obviously would find great interest in helping consumers know that their meat comes from America. Mm-hmm. 
and agribusiness really had no interest in that transparency being there. Um, and another thing that that kind of came up in the uh, that in the election um, discussion was immigration. This was a like a you know a huge issue. So Brian, can you um, talk us through what some of the proposed policies, um, both kind of prior to the uh, election and then post election, mean for farmers? And how and how it kind of like influenced uh, maybe farmers' decisions to uh, support Trump. Sure. Well, just I guess to backpedal a little bit um, for context, uh, it's estimated that between fifty and seventy percent of farm workers in the U.S. are undocumented immigrants. Uh, Ninety-five percent of those from Mexico, and um, there is a uh, uh, agricultural visa for temporary agricultural workers in the United States, but it actually um, supplies, you know, relatively few farm workers uh, to to the agricultural sector. Uh, it's considered, you know, kind of a, a broken broken system, both by farmers um, and the workers. Um, so that being said, uh, that cheap supply of agricultural labor is, um, you know, an underpinning of our food system, and it, it keeps food prices uh, relatively low in the U.S. compared to most other countries in the world. And uh, farmers, um, of course, you know, individual circumstances vary, but uh, there's oftentimes a, a real shortage of labor. And so uh, this is, again, it, Kind of like the TPP, where, where some farmers, even though they may have been pro-Trump on certain issues, um, you know, kind of at least uh, within their own circles w- would be murmuring, um, but he's not really going to deport our farm workers, is he? <laughs> and, um, there were certainly uh, signals from his agriculture advisory team uh, during the campaign to assuage those fears, no, no, you know, we're, we're not going to mess with uh, the farm labor system mm-hmm. in a way that is going to hurt uh, farmers' interests and, and need for a, a cheap labor supply, for, for better or for worse. Um, and that's a whole other conversation. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, that the reality of that remains to be uh, seen because um, when you're when you're doing these deportations, um, as he has continued to pledge that he will do, how are you going to select, you know, uh, whether, you know, this person that you're looking to deport because they're undocumented is a farm worker or not? Um, you know, that, that starts to get very complicated very quickly. And even just the, the rhetoric around uh, tightening of the border and of deportations, um, I think, is arguably uh, going to restrict the labor supply uh, on farms. And so that's that's a great concern to a lot of farmers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the real issue there, I think, is that uh, the farm labor system is broken on, on multiple fronts. But in terms of your question about uh, farmers voting for Trump, I think, you know, they, in the back of their mind, said, you know, He's no not way. really going to do it. Yeah. All these folks, because, you know, he's a businessman. He realizes that we depend on that cheap labor, and that 
rhetoric is really serving a different purpose in his campaign. So how that plays out, we'll we'll see. So what, um, Alicia? What in you in your opinion? Um, what could this look like if it does play out? Say he does kind of proceed with an order that um, affects the majority of farm workers in the United States. Uh, how does that play out, and what are the repercussions for consumers? Well, I think Brian's right, and the the effects would be dramatic. Setting aside the the questions about maybe what what farm labor should look like, there's the reality of what it is. Mm-hmm. And I would agree there was a great New York Times piece covering farmers in California who were pro-Trump but really didn't think that his conversation about the border wall and deportation was really going to happen and are very, very concerned. And already with the ice raids kind of sweeping through the country, um, there are fields that are uh, kind of with, out there with rotting produce. Um, I think for fruit and vegetable sector, it's it's a major problem. Just the San Joaquin Valley in California is a $35 billion industry, um, and they're feeling that. Um, you know, the dairy industry increasingly is, is dependent on farm labor, particularly, you know, um, bigger dairies. And there are, I think, Brian, you might have even um, cited some, some notes that, you know, there there's concerns that retail mail prices could spike. Um, obviously, immigrants play a crucial role in our food system. There are farm workers, there are restaurant workers. There's a lot of places where their hands touch our food and bring it to our plates. And, um, it, you know, this is the worst-case scenario, this kind of enforcement-only approach to immigration. Even the American Farm Bureau, which is very conservative, um, to them what's going on now is like the worst-case scenario for the food system. And is the thought that, uh, you know, that we couldn't possibly replace these farm workers with um, American citizens? Well, this is hard work, and it's highly skilled work. Not everyone can successfully jump into a field and pick produce without ruining it. I think it's often considered this low-skill work, but it really isn't. And I don't think we should assume that any American will just fill in for them. It's long hours. It's low pay. Um, And, again, that's setting aside the bigger conversation about what, what should that system look like and what are the implications of it. And I would say, you know, there's large farms, but there's also mid farmers that I've certainly talked to who use workers as part of the H-2A visa program that Brian mentioned. And in many cases, they've worked with these families for many years and even decades. And so there's also this personal loss that they're feeling um, in addition to what they're seeing in their bottom lines. Wow. Um, I would add that, you know, there's been quite a few studies actually uh, looking at Americans' willingness to do farm work. Um, and in areas with very high unemployment, you know, programs to actively recruit farm labor from the pool of unemployed workers, um, native-born American workers, has been um, just almost entirely unsuccessful. You know, like mm-hmm. one study there was in North Carolina, there was, you know, there was like 200,000 unemployed workers who, you know, were contacted and essentially offered the opportunity to work on farms know, more or less at minimum wage, and, you know, a few hundred actually applied for the job. Uh, a handful showed up. Wow. And, you know, like five of them actually completed the season. 
So mm-hmm. that's, I mean, that is just crazy, right? I mean, we have uh, unemployment is an issue, although you can say that it's down. Um, if you look at, you know, some statistics, uh, but we have a lot of Americans who just aren't willing to do the work. It seems like you're saying it's uh, and, you know, by the way, it kind of begs, it kind of like brings to light minimum wage is abysmally low. I mean, you can't possibly live on what is it? $7 and 25 cents an hour, um, which kind of, you know, in thinking about that, and in kind of and in playing maybe the devil's advocate a little bit, would it be a good thing ultimately um, to kind of focus more on U.S. production, even if it will drive the prices up? Like, shouldn't we be paying more for our food? And wouldn't those effects be felt in the labor market? Yeah. I mean, well, I, oh, sorry, uh, Alicia. Do you want to go? Do you want to go first? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I would just say it goes hand in hand, right? Um, back in the 80s, you know, farmers realized when they were in the middle of a deep crisis and a deep pricing crisis that their need for fair pricing that would give them, um, you know, more than it cost them to produce food was directly tied to the struggle of labor to get fair wages. Um, so our ability to be able to afford food that is represents a fair price to farmers, um, it does require thinking about standard of living across the board. And at present, the system seems to really mostly favor corporations who, who are really have a control over the marketplace and able to somehow both put downward pressure on the prices farmers receive and also try to keep prices low because consumers aren't um, making, you know, living wages. Um, so it's an important connection to make. And and it seems like a vicious cycle. Yeah. Um, Brian, do you have anything to add to that? Sure. I mean, I, the, I think, you know, most Americans could afford to pay more for their food. Um, I think the the bottom rungs uh, certainly could not, and, and I think you know um, social safety net programs are important to address that. But the vast majority of Americans could pay a little more, and um, you know it wouldn't actually take that much of an increase in food prices to support a massive increase in uh, in farm worker wages. Uh, just the way that the economics sort of pan out, you know, it's like. $40 more a year in, at the grocery store equals you know, 40% uh, higher wages. Uh, don't quote me on those exact figures, but you know, that's roughly what economists have worked out. And so, yeah, there's, there's some other forces at play, you know, kind of um, uh, uh, taking advantage, you know, economically of that system and, and pulling the strings on it. Um, but I think, you know, uh, grassroots efforts to you know, bring awareness to the issue and, you know, um, even things like labels, you know, sort of fair food type certifications are, are really important. Um, you know, people will pay drastically more for organic produce, those that can afford to, and I think, you know, those same people would uh, pay a bit more for uh, food produced in, in fair labor circumstances um, here in the United States. Okay. All right. So um, I just want to 
interject really quickly. We're going to have to take a really quick commercial break right now to hear a word from our sponsors. Um, But when we get back, I want to continue the conversations about the reasons why and repercussions of uh, farmers voting for Trump. Um, So lots more to come. Stay tuned. This program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a national nonprofit network with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Chefs Collaborative members work to make sustainable practices second nature for every chef in the United States. Chefs Collaborative was founded in 1993 by visionary chefs including Rick Bayless and Alice Waters, who acknowledge the influential role of food professionals on our food choices, our collective personal health, the vitality of cultures, and the integrity of the global environment. Chefs Collaborative believes that the greater culinary community can be a catalyst for positive change by expanding the market for good food and helping to preserve local farming and fishing communities. Change menus, change lives. Learn more about Chefs Collaborative at chefscollaborative.org. Okay, and we're back on Eating Matters, where today we're speaking with Alicia Harvey from FarmAid and Brian Barth, a writer-at-large for Modern Farmer. Um, Picking up where we left off, it seems like the other kind of big component of potentially why farmers supported uh, Trump were environmental regulations. And we certainly know uh, from what we've heard so far from the administration that they're not a very big fan <laughs> of, of regulations in general and certainly not environmental regulations. So I'm wondering, uh, Brian, can you kind of kick off this conversation? Are there any, are there any you know, proposed regulations or regulations in place right now that the administration uh, kind of has in its crosshairs? Or is it just more generally speaking? Well, the, the one that, you know, farmers talk the most about by far is uh, the WOTUS rule, which stands for Waters of the United States, um, which was a clarification uh, that President Obama issued uh, regarding how the Clean Water Act uh, should be implemented, essentially. And um, it, it gave the EPA uh, greater latitude than it had, had historically had to regulate uh, surface water on private land. Um, uh, all, all surface water of the United States, uh, you know, are under the jurisdiction of the government uh, through that, um, the Clean Water Act has sort of the, um, the right to impose restrictions on how land use affects water quality, including uh, farmland. And so this, this WOTUS rule um, was, you know, uh, hailed by many environmentalists um, and sort of decried by uh, a lot of rural landowners as giving the EPA excessive reach into uh, limiting or, or defining how they could use their property. And so even, um, even uh, you know, anecdotally, I, I have heard from many um, environmentally-minded farmers that they, they felt the rule was um, excessive and, uh, and would prefer to, um, you know, have more of their own leeway to determine how they would like, how they would use their land even though they want to reach the same goals. So uh, Trump has, you know, the Trump camp has certainly signaled that uh, WOTUS will 
be rolled back at some point. I don't think there's an absolute guarantee of that, but I think it is pretty likely. Mm-hmm. So we will see. Uh, what is what do you mean by surface water? Is that just is that runoff or are those? Um, well, that's that's what the WOTUS rules sought to define more explicitly. Um, certainly, any lake, river, or stream uh, has you know uh, already been defined as waters of the United States, and so this new rule basically extended that uh, potentially in many instances to irrigation ditches, roadside ditches, uh, low-lying, you know, land that may at certain times of year collect water on a farmer's property. Uh, if there is a connection, a hydro, uh, hydrologic connection between surface water, uh, basically rain that, that falls and, and collects anywhere, even if it's just a ditch for a few hours after a rain, um, it, if uh, that water collects on private property, um, it can potentially trigger uh, EPA jurisdiction to how the land around it is being used. So, for example, things like you know herbicides and pesticides and erosion control and, and all of those things, um, you know, the EPA can start to tell you what you can and can't do. I mean, wouldn't it ultimately be a good thing, though, for not only for farmers' health, but also the longevity and productivity of their land. Alicia, is this another example of how um, farmers might not, maybe didn't vote in their best interest? Well, I think it depends on how you slice it. I mean, with the WOTUS rule, like, that, you know, was controversial among farmers. The broader issue, though, is, you know, there's certainly farmers out there who see EPA as a partner to keep our soil and our air and our waters clean and safe. There's great overlap between the Department of Agriculture and um, the EPA on on issues around our natural resources. Um, And, you know, historically, um, it's been an important boon for farmers to have policies that incentivize stewardship. Um, So I think there's plenty of farmers out there who understand that connection and um, whether they'd be for the type of EPA that might roll out under Trump is a question, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, there's, like I think Brian hinted, there are plenty of farmers who um, think long term about the land that they're stewarding um, and did woe to strike the right balance was, I think, you know, there was a frustration there that that Trump did tap into. Um, What about, I mean, when when we're kind of talking about this, is it fair to say that most smaller and mid-sized farms would be a little bit more um, accepting and and, uh, willing to go along with some of these environmental regulations as opposed to the larger commodity farms? Or is that um, too, too much I don't of know. an... Yeah, I don't know if that's the easiest way to view it. The truth is, you know, in addition to EPA, there are a variety of programs out of the Natural um, Resource Conservation Service at USDA, which is a really important agency within it, um, that farmers of all types benefit from. Um, and so there's different conversations about how do you make sure the lion's share of those programs don't only go towards one kind of farm. Um, but I would say that uh, it's interesting, whereas EPA is more easily seen as the enemy for farmers, NRCS at USDA is often seen in friendlier terms. Um, so, 
sometimes it has to do with the messenger. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it's honey, right? It, you know, that there's an incentive there um, as opposed to additional burden. Um, but, you know, we're always trying to find that space that kind of um, bridges the historic divide between, you know, farmer and environmental concerns. And I think increasingly there's really impressive organizations and farmers who are straddling that and saying and showing how farm-based practices can actually be forward motion for our environmental concerns, can help mitigate climate change, can help clean our water. Um, so we're hopeful that that continues. Absolutely. And we actually interviewed um, the one of the co-founders of a startup a few months ago. It's called Farmland LP in there. Um, basically, their premise is... Um, is to demonstrate that sustainable farming practices are actually more um, lucrative than more traditional methods of farming. So there is hope that it that it can take over. Um, okay, so I want to also kind of circle back to something that uh, Alicia you started to talk about in the beginning, which is this kind of this consolidation of farms towards uh, hyper efficiency in the, in the form of larger farm uh, larger farms um, and and driven mostly by corporate takeovers. Can you tell us a little bit more about what this entails and and who are these corporations that are kind of taking over the marketplace? And then also, what are the repercussions? Mm-hmm. No, it's an important issue, and I actually think it's one where there's, there's several segments of farmers who are looking to see if Trump is going to end up siding for farmers or for big agribusiness. Um, you know, consolidation in agriculture has been happening over the last several decades to the point where if you look at almost any sector, um, you know, beef, pork, poultry, um, grains, and seeds, um, the num the control that uh, there's a there's a threshold that economists use. You know what? How much of a market share do the top four firms in that sector control? And across all of those, we're beyond the point where um, an economist would say it's a competitive market, um, and that has really important uh, implications for farmers. As markets consolidate, farmers have fewer buyers for their products. They have left less leverage over the marketplace, um, and this is happening not only on where they're going to sell their goods to, but also where they buy their inputs from. So there's, um, you know, been skyrocketing seed prices that uh, are like well over, you know, three hundred percent or three hundred and fifty percent when you look at the per acre costs. Um, when we and that kind of started with. Um, patented seeds in the in the mid 90s. So there's this really important relationship between corporate power over the food system and a farmer's ability to make a good price. And uh, patent seeds by a company such as Monsanto? <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. The Monsantos out there, um, the Bayers, the Dow DuPont, and all now what was called the big six in seeds. Um, so Bayer, Monsanto, Syngenta, Dow, DuPont, and I'm forgetting one, of course. Um, they're now all consolidating down to three. Um, there's There are different places in that merger process. I think a lot of farmers were troubled by... Um, you know, President Trump stepping in and trying to broker a deal between the Monsanto Bayer merger um, 
because that's one that is sparking a lot of concerns. And so, you know, we've already been seeing the Department of Justice greenlight merger after merger across food and agriculture. And there's not a lot of hope that, um, you know, that Jeffrey Sessions as AG is actually going to stop that. He's He's been very favorable of those kinds of mergers in the past. So it's, it's yeah. important. Um, and then and then the repercussions would be an inability of farmers to, would that just lead to lower, you know, they, they can really increase the price uh, of the inputs, like you said, and then farmers can, will make even less, um, which is crazy to think about because their margins, especially for commodity uh, farmers, seem to be razor thin. I mean, one of the sectors that we're keeping our eye on is poultry because it's probably the most egregious example of not only corporate power across the sector, but also up and down. So increasingly, a company like a Tyson or a Purdue or a Pilgrim's Pride um, not only has an incredible market share, um, but it also owns many segments of the supply chain. And that has dramatically changed the relationship between the, far, the farmer themselves and their ability um, to have, you know, control over what they make, but also the amount of risk they're made to take on. Um, and there's a set of, of rules that are currently in limbo um, called the Farmer Fair Practice Rules, and they are part of that entire across-the-board 60-day delay on any regulations across um, the federal government right now. And uh, I can tell you there are a lot of poultry growers who are firm uh, pro-Trump supporters who are uh, keeping their eyes on if that's going to go through because they have been asking for those regulations and those protections for decades. So to kind of summarize um, the, this conversation about the reasons why Trump uh, farmers supported Trump and then the repercussions of um, their support overall in, in these four categories, is it safe to say that farmers in general kind of voted against their best interest when looking at trade deals, environmental regulations, and immigration. Uh, uh, Brian, do you want to do you want to take that? Uh, well, I would argue no that they didn't vote in their best interest. <laughs> yeah, um, I think in this consolidation uh, uh, subject that you're just speaking of, I think that is that is the one arena where farmers are very very united across the many shades uh, of agriculture, um, you know, from the, the biggest commodity farmers down to, you know, small organic farmers. Um, so, yeah, I, I think, you know, but it, it is important, of course, to realize that, um, you know, Trump himself will not, you know, make agriculture policy um, in the coming years. And I think a lot of those folks that in agriculture that may have voted for him may have voted for him based on other issues besides farming. Um, and so I think there are some, some really big things on the table, and I think, you know, Trump may, uh, may you know, have lit, lit a fire under certain things, like I think uh, uh, farm labor uh, reform and, and the H-2A visa system, I think, you know, is going to have to be addressed in a very serious way in the coming year or two. Uh, and that's something that has just sort of floundered for 
basically decades. Mm-hmm. Um, people have been working on that, and I think that you know, because of Trump's point of view, it's going to sort of force the hand you know, of all the different stakeholders to just get together and finally you know, make some compromises and agree on some things. Um, and talking about kind of what's to come um, from an agricultural perspective, let's talk about Sonny Perdue, who is, of course, Trump's pick to head the USDA. Um, Brian, I know that you've written about this um, quite a bit. So can you tell us about his background and what we can kind of expect to see from his stewardship of the agency? Sure. Um, I grew up in Georgia where Sonny Perdue was governor uh, in the early 2000s, uh, really throughout the two. 2003 to 2011, maybe. Um, and, uh, you know, the biggest thing that he was known for, uh, just in terms of nationally related to agriculture, is when Georgia was in an extreme drought, um, I think that was like 2007 and eight. Uh, you know, he organized this prayer for rain on the, on the state capitol. You know, all the main- that sounds yeah. a lot like a rain dance to me. <laughs> Yeah, and, uh, you know, it it actually started with a a farm group. The Georgia branch of the Farm Bureau organized an event, and then Sonny Perdue, like, scaled it up and said, we're going to make this a statewide thing. Wow. But anyways, he he grew up um, on a farm in a farming community, and he has owned a number of um, agribusinesses, you know, not like the Monsantos of the world by any means, but really regional businesses in, in the Deep South. And you know he's he's very conventional by the books. He you know I don't I don't expect a big um, break from the status quo, uh, but I I don't necessarily think he's going to purposely go in and, and gut um, you know some of the strides in the USDA around supporting uh, local and regional food systems. I, I think that that is, uh, has a lot of legs to stand on and. Um, will survive, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Um, environmentally, you know, he's, he's certainly going to side, I think, you know, with Trump on the, the rolling back the regulations. Okay. I'm like, <laughs> I'm, of course, a big fan of regulations, though, so um, in, in general. So um, that's not music to my ears. But uh, hopeful in the support of farmers, like you mentioned. Um Alicia, what are some of the top food and ag policies uh, that farmers kind of need support on now from the administration? Mm-hmm. Well, I can tell you, you know, Farm Aid runs a hotline, 1-800-FARM-AID. And um, so we're on the phone with farmers every day. Um, and for us, even though we're not in the middle of the country, it's, palp- it's uh, palpable to us. Um, the kind of developing farm crisis going on in the countryside, prices are low. Um, farmers have seen no relief in their input costs. Farmland values are expected to drop, I think, between 6 and 10% this year yet again. Mm-hmm. Net farm income is, I don't know, it's half or somewhere somewhere between 30 and 50% less than it was from its peak in 2013, and it's being felt. So, you know, programs that are really there to serve farmers in times of financial duress, their ability to access credit, um, and the ability of farmers of all backgrounds to access credit, right? There's a history that this last administration really tried to rectify um, to make sure that it was repairing some of the harm done to black farmers and Latino farmers and Native American farmers who did not receive fair treatment at loan offices. 
Um, that's an important one, I think, for Sunny Purdue and others to uphold. Uh, we're also going to be in the middle of a major farm bill development. Um, the first one, um, uh, you know, for the last five years, you know, every five years it comes up for um, reauthorization. And mm-hmm. so there is a whole suite of programs in food and agriculture that, um, you know, this administration is going to have a role in carving out um, in concert with Congress, obviously. Um, you know, I think that for for farmers who are engaged in addressing climate, climate change and its mitigation, um, flat-out denial of climate change's existence or even the kind of tepid my mind is open on it that I think President Trump has expressed more recently, um, I, I'm concerned that that falls really short of what farmers need, you know, also related to our hotline where we get calls from natural disasters across the country. Yeah. And we sense this exacerbation of droughts and floods and other major weather events. Um, there is a real cost to that. There's a real emotional devastation to it. Um, there are a suite of programs through USDA that, that help farmers in those times of need, but it can be the difference between survival or not if they can access those and are they really ready for what we're probably going to face and are already starting to face with regards to climate change? I don't think um, – I think farm, there's a lot of farmers out there who, who know that keeping our heads in the sand is, is not going to make it go away. Um, and then I would say, you know, we, we really need uh, – work on the antitrust aspect of food and agriculture. Um, And we need to, you know, wherever we are, rally around new kind of market alternatives that are popping up that have provided a great alternative. You know, the development of local and regional food systems, like Ryan kind of mentioned, um, that saw a huge renaissance uh, over the last decade. That has to continue. You know, last year our show was in Appalachia. um, And for a, a region that is hurt from the loss of tobacco and coal, you know, f- jobs related to food and agriculture and the rebirth of local food systems is a major bright point. And I think we should really consider that when we think about how to revitalize rural America. And that and that speaks to uh, my next question, which is what can consumers specifically do um, apart from supporting from, a you know, a policy and voting with your, uh, you know, actually getting politically active, um, what can consumers do from a purchasing power standpoint to move the needle on some of these issues? Alicia, do you want to, I'm going to, I'm going to give you that one also. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, there's, um, a whole, you know, bunch of, of new market structures out there that, you know, it's evident that people are participating in the growth in farmers markets in programs like CSAs where um, there's really no distance between the farmer and the, the consumer, right? The supply chain is cut very short, and um, it's it's been a boon for the health of Americans and for the bottom line for farmers. Um, and it's kind of revitalized the celebration of what agriculture really brings to all of us. Um, and so I would always encourage folks to keep on finding those those spaces and, and deepening their connection to farmers, um, seeking out brands that are farmer-owned cooperatives um, and truly farmer-owned cooperatives um, and doing a little bit of digging around that um, I think is, is smart. Um, we're big fans of farm-to-school programs, and uh, we have a, a page up called Farm-to-School Rocks. 
um, to honor our kind of music uh, connection. But really, there are so many ways, no matter who you are, a student, a parent, um, a teacher, a school administrator, there pretty much any role you can imagine in the community, there's a way for you to champion something like a farm-to-school program, and there's a lot of other local policies like that that you can actually get your hands around in a way that is tangible and it doesn't feel far off um, and federal, and, and it's both, you know, through kind of uh, political councils, but it's also just through the engagement you have with your schools and your colleges. Mm-hmm. Um so there's a, there's a lot of ways to get involved. It's never been easier to get involved. I'll say that. Well, that is great news and truly optimistic, especially in a time uh, where voting with your dollars really matters. And we are kind of seeing a um, and the renaissance of. Uh, political activism on one side. So we're, with that, we're gonna we're gonna have to end our conversation for today. But Alicia and Brian, I want to thank you both so much for coming on the show today. You're welcome. Thank you. Okay, for more coverage on this topic, be sure to check out Brian's articles on modernfarmer.com, as well as his website, brianjbarth.com, and go to farmaid.org to learn more about the nonprofit's upcoming events and how you can get involved. I also want to give a big thanks to our sponsors for their generous support. Our show is produced with help from Taylor Lanzette, and show music is by Tim Archer. Thank you to our engineer, Vidar Hirsch. All episodes of Eating Matters are available on the Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe. Like, share, follow, and post to us on Facebook, and find us on Twitter at Eat Matters HRN. I'm Jenna Liute, and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.